The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to this week's Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Nathan Bell, Portfolio Manager at Intelligent Investor. And as usual, I'm joined by Alex Hughes, our Small Cap Portfolio Manager. Welcome, Alex. Hi, everyone. Just want to say congratulations, mate. You got a great outcome in the cricket last night. What an amazing game. I was on the edge of my seat for most of it, but yeah, incredible. So good to see New Zealand go through. Hopefully Australia can follow tonight. Uh, I have to admit that uh, I actually go for the West Indies because I just love Viv Richard, the master, Viv Richard, the master blaster. <laughs> so I think it's a bit unfair if I just go back for the Aussies now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, let's get into some questions. The first one, is there a price or time that you'd buy A&P? Do you find it strange that they're yet to really address the issue of remediation for the fee-for-no-service problem. Um, I think I always tend to have the view that every stock has its price, and I think there is a price for AMP. I just think at the moment, and the reason I sold it at pretty much what I bought it for a, a while back was that there's just so much in flux at the moment, and I can't think of any times where uh, I've stepped into a fluid situation like this uh, over the last 15 years and actually uh, done well out of it. Normally, it pays to wait. Now, that's not the same as saying you've seen a company and the share price falls and you can clearly articulate why you think um, that's been overdone and therefore you buy into the stock. I just think the actual business case is so fluid because you've got uh, financial planners that are leaving the organisation. You've got uh, billions of dollars walking out the door of the funds management business, which is uh, moving over to the industry funds in particular down in Victoria. And you've got a CEO who's got a big clean-up job to do and people who have been following me for a little while since I come back to Intelligent Investor will know that I'm always looking for situations where a new CEO has come into a business because if you look for five years forward, it's amazing how much value can get created over that time. But I think one thing is you don't necessarily have to rush in. Uh, and at the moment, De Ferrari is just starting to get his own henchmen in and get rid, getting rid of the old management. And this cleanup is going to take a lot of time at the same time where the business fundamentals are deteriorating for a bunch of different reasons. So um, there is a price for it. I, I'm not comfortable buying it today uh, or not interested in buying it today. And I'm not actually surprised that they haven't solved the problems yet. Uh, amazing, uh, somewhat ironically, I used to work at well, my first job in the city in Sydney uh, about 18 years ago was at Deutsche Bank, uh, which is now sort of almost looking like it's going to go broke under a big cleanup operation. And I just know what it was like when they brought uh, Sarbanes-Oxley uh, just as one example of the work that we had to do in that place and describe all the processes within the bank and the, on top of just doing all your normal work. And Deutsche Bank at the time was the largest bank on the planet by assets, uh, which explains you know why now it's unravelling. It just spread its tentacles uh, too far around the globe. And I just know how complicated these banks are and everyone, you think these modern, you know, multi-billion, $10 billion institutions like the banks would have excellent IT and and uh, and it's just not like that. A lot of this stuff has just been patchworked together and when you try and figure out this stuff, it's actually just really hard to get the data and that's just because technology hasn't been able to keep up. So I'm not actually surprised given what's going on at, the, at AMP at the moment that they haven't solved uh, any of the major issues but also haven't even sorted out some of the shorter-term issues like remediation. 
I mean, when you look at these businesses across the world, you know, Wells Fargo spring to mind. Some of the UK firms, you know, they there's a there's a tendency for these large financials to disappoint customers, and they they, they tend to stay in the industry. Um, you know, they're they're big businesses. They've got lots of scale. They've got diversity diversity of income streams, and they've got inertia there, especially with financial products and consumers being slow to move to competing providers. So there's a lot there to work with them, and and. And and that and that allows them to work through problems like this. But whether these types of situations are huge windfalls for investors, you know, probably not. I'm a bit more skeptical about that. You know, AMP is probably going to be a declining business, so you need to pay a really low price for it. I I just think stylistically, it's probably better. You're probably going to make more money if you're if you're seeking out businesses that aim to delight their customers and are doing so. I think that's probably where your time is best served. So I I think you can make money in a business like AMP, but yeah, whether that's the right place for your time, um, not sure. It can also be a thin line between timing the market and also just waiting for the actual business fundamentals to line up. And I think in the case with AMPs, I think you can actually afford to be a bit patient because this is like trying to turn around the Titanic. This is an enormous, complicated organisation. And I think you can wait to see that De Ferrari's actually got some runs on the board or starting to see things like funds that are currently flowing out of the business um, to see a stop to that and at least some sort of settling down in the business. And, and then you can weigh up at least what you think the ongoing earnings will look like, which is much more difficult when everything's heading backwards. Next question. Hi, guys. Thanks for answering my question in the latest podcast. Any thoughts on cybersecurity? I've been following Whitehawk, which also uh, which looks quite promising, but has just been a bit too volatile for me to pull the trigger on. Cheers, Tim. Yes. I mean, it's obviously a growing industry. It's a really important issue. Um, there's a large incentive for people to try and obtain sensitive information. So I think people will continually try. Their methods of doing so will continually get better. Um, so there's obviously a, a business there in trying to protect against that. Now, I don't think there's any such thing as actually solving cyber security per se, because I think it's always going to be this never-ending game of cat and mouse between the perpetrators and the security providers. And the security providers are always going to come up with novel ways to try and, you know, hack into various databases and so on. So um, that, that makes it difficult for providers because they have to constantly innovate and, and figure out what the perpetrators are doing. Now, um, Whitehawk was the business mentioned, wasn't it? And w- when I look at a business like this, you know, so I need to ask, okay, so this business has some new way of protecting against cybersecurity breaches and things like that. You know, do I have any ability to understand what they what they do and how that compares to competitors and whether that's enduring? And it's it's actually very difficult because they don't want to tell you what they do because that gives the game away. So that makes analysing the business difficult. Now, I mean, some people try and infer that they have a good um, solution when they see contract wins with important customers and things like that, but um, that's a difficult game to play. So for a situation like, like this, um, it has very little revenue, recently raised some money, it's it's yet to be proven. Um, quite a difficult situation to make money from in my eyes. There's a bunch of these companies listed in the US and some of them uh, have some good relationships and contracts with the government. One I had a very brief look at a couple of years ago was Palo Alto. Uh, I haven't looked at it since. I don't know what it's been doing share price-wise or business-wise. But I just found it too complicated. I, I just didn't really understand the contracts. I don't um, have a good view into the future of what it looks like. And there's actually a lot of players in the US all competing for this dollar because everyone wants those Pentagon dollars because they tend to be very sticky over time. But for me, I just couldn't quite tell what the future looked like for these businesses, um, You know, who would be the winners, whether the who was winning today might be the loser of tomorrow. 
it was just too complicated for me. But there's a great, obviously, there's a great trend there. But just trying to pick the winners has been too hard for me so far. Next question: How do you think about demergers? Is there hidden gold in these transactions? Yeah, um, well, demergers generally, I think there needs to be a compelling reason for demerging two businesses. You don't just split two good businesses for no reason. Um, because it does add extra costs, you need two boards, you need two executive teams, you might need two head offices, so um, that adds to the cost. Um, but if there's a compelling case for doing so, so it might be that two businesses have different growth potential or they might have different returns on capital and, and needs for capital and maybe you know required management expertise or even if the two businesses separately would, would have materially different valuations, you know that could be a case for splitting the businesses. Um, so when you do so, that, that could create value, and, and there's many examples of that throughout the world. Um, these situations can create um, the spin-off phenomenon when the smaller discarded subsidiary is, is spun off and it may not have index representation after the spin-off and investors might question why they hold this tiny little subsidiary. And so there might be indiscriminate selling and that could allow for a bargain purchase when you're on the other end of that. And spin-offs have historically done well as a result. Um, so that's that's the case that um, we'd take a look at things like this. And there's actually one popping up um, soon, Nath, with GrainCorp splitting off their malt business, which looks quite interesting. Yeah, I think that when a, you get an orphan stock that's discarded that big fund managers don't want to hold on to because it's such a small portion of their portfolio, you can actually get a huge amount of selling because people are just completely disinterested or the historical financials provided for the company look messy uh, you don't, you're not familiar with the executives who have taken over the business. There's just a lot of things that make them not look very obvious as a, an investment candidate. The last piece of research I saw, uh, which looked at the period up until I think it was 2004, and then the sort of 10 or 15 years since. And in the past, you actually basically did extremely well if you held on to the parent company and you uh, kept your shares in the uh, the spin-off. And so holding on to both stocks uh, performed really well across the board. But over the last 10 years, what they found was that six out of 10 um, tend to do exceptionally well and the other four don't do very well at all, if not uh, very poorly. So it's something that still statistically is a reliable indicator of outperformance. But now you actually have to be a little bit more selective. And I think, uh, as you raised, Alex, I think when you get those orphan stocks that nobody wants, is a much more interesting opportunity than when, say, coal splits out of West Farmers because the coal's executives are already probably getting remunerated pretty well. I doubt Coles was ever struggling to get capital as part of the West Farmers conglomerate. And so mm. I just think, um, you know, it's a big company that's also well-covered and well-known, so I just don't think there's anywhere near as much value that can be created in a situation like that. Yeah, and I'm also sceptical about the returns from these um, orphan stocks in the future because everyone's so aware of what they've done in the past. You know, that, that edge was there because pe- people didn't previously understand it very well, but now everyone does. So it's hard to see that there's going to be huge outperformance there in future, um, although those forces which drive the price down are still there. So, so yeah, perhaps there's still outperformance, but just not as much. Yeah, I think it's just a good example of just markets are far more competitive these days. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, gents. Enjoying the podcast. Keep up the good work. A few years ago, when I started on the investment journey, I gave some money to a trader who traded on my behalf. As I've learned more, I've taken 75% of the money back. With the remainder, he has fully invested in Mesoblast in the biotech sector. Keen to hear your thoughts. It seems high risk and fluctuates considerably. I assume this is a high risk, high reward type play. Thanks, John. 
interesting strategy to give your money to someone else like that. Um, you know, if you're interested in becoming a better investor, I think the best thing you can do is invest your own money because, you know, there's nothing like having your own money on the line and, you know, there's nothing like learning from mistakes where you actually lose money. So um, maybe there's something to be said about that. But in terms of Mesa Blast, um, I don't have anything to add. I, I really look at, um, rarely, sorry, um, I yeah, really look at biotechs. You know, they're essentially just a, a portfolio of lottery stocks, lottery situations. So I find it very difficult. So nothing to add from me. Sorry. Yeah, I've only had, just had a very quick look at this and uh, about a month back and because the share price has come way back and I remember four years or five years ago, everyone was talking about this as being the next CSL and everyone got extremely excited. And I know there was a number of uh, very wealthy Australians who had shares in the business, but that really shouldn't be necessarily an indicator of anything. And the share price has, has collapsed essentially, but it does look like it's actually on the cusp of providing, uh, producing some real products. Uh, it's not an area that I have any expertise in, but uh, I am going to go and talk to one of the analysts here at Intelligent Investors. So uh, if I've got anything more uh, to share about that, then uh, I will do in future podcasts. Can you put some flavour on the recent shareholder update from Clydesdale Bank? And why would Richard Branson have sold Virgin Money to Clydesdale Bank? So the big news from Clydesdale was it had its investor day and basically uh, David Duffy, the CEO, said that within three years, the bank will produce a return on, uh, return on equity of at least 12%, uh, which you would assume would give a share price of somewhere between 1 to 1.2 times book value. Uh, if, and put, that would actually put it on a 9% dividend yield by my rough calcs. And so it's highly unlikely if he achieves that, that the share price will be anywhere languishing at the three dollars sixty and zero point six times book value that it is today you'd expect to to probably almost double your money and so the question is if the jury's out as to um, david duffy laid out a bunch of uh, targets in the past and hasn't hasn't met all of them and there's so there's skepticism that duffy can actually achieve the cost cutting targets which is a a very big component of uh, where the higher profits are going to come from uh, there's also a, a bit more switched away from mortgages, which is extremely competitive in the UK at the moment, and more towards unsecured lending like credit cards, which is uh, quite a big, well, uh, virgin money. That's something somewhere where they've been quite strong. Uh, and obviously you have less protection when you're offering money uh, to people on credit cards than you do with mortgages. So there's a lot of scepticism, which is why the share price is languishing where it is. But my view is that I just think it's too cheap at this share price, but you have to remember there's a lot of things that banks can't control and even though Brexit has slowed the economy a little bit in the UK, actually unemployment I think is still near a record low and the economy has actually held up pretty well and you've already got a very slow mortgage market, a lot of competition, pressure on profit margins. So it's not a, a simple uh, task of just calculating the mass and assume it's all going to happen. Duffy's assumed the official interest rate would go up a quarter percent over the next three years. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that's going to happen. We've seen uh, Mario Draghi in Europe talking about reducing the official interest rate lower and bear in mind it's already negative 0.4% in Europe. So clearly low interest rates and Frankenstein monetary policies haven't helped Europe. And, and essentially what banks are, leverage, leverage plays on interest rates. And so the further they go down, the more pressure is on profit margins. But I just think at 0.6 times book value, for a business that should be able to do return on equity of at least double digits, uh, I think the idea of at least doing 10% per annum from here uh, with dividends that should uh, increase very quickly in two to three years from now, uh, that's why I've, I've kept it in the portfolios. 
in terms of why uh, Richard Branson sold out, there's two reasons. First, uh, Clydesdale or slash David Duffy paid a 35% premium for the acquisition. And I think there's been some value dilution in uh, in that. I think that's pretty fair to say, but um, we'll only know for definite uh, in a few years' time. Uh, but here's the other line that I think is also very important, but uh, but not huge in the, in the in compared for uh, Branson Stake now in Clydesdale. So he owns 14% of Clydesdale, and I think he owned something like 38% of Virgin Money before it was taken over. And it says uh, Clydesdale has agreed to license the Virgin Money brand for 12 million pounds a year initially going up to $15 million in the fourth year and will also pay additional royalties equivalent to 1% of revenues from the fifth year. The royalties go to Branson. So there's a couple of clear reasons why Branson agreed to the deal. And, and the last one is also that just uh, Virgin Money was subscale. The banking market in the UK looks very similar to Australia's where you've got four very dominant uh, businesses that share the bulk of the profit in the industry. And Virgin, uh, really, to play against the bigger guys, needed to do something, as does Clydesdale. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea to get together or that Duffy's paid the right price, but at least uh, the combined company, which is going to be rebadged Virgin Money, uh, has a shot at becoming the sixth largest bank, or it is the sixth largest bank, but at least um, having a profit profile that, that matches sort of sixth position in a, in a fairly profitable business when the uh, government isn't treating the industry uh, like just a giant money sack. So I think, just as an example, Lloyds Bank is up to about £18 billion in provisions uh, for a type of housing insurance uh, that it offered prior to the GFC, which um, uh, the government believed that people were just getting ripped off and didn't need. Uh, And that's that's just for Lloyds, and this has affected Clydesdale and a bunch of other banks. But uh, August uh, next month is the last time people can make claims uh, on what's called PPI, Payment Protection Insurance, and so once that go, goes away, that should uh, increase the cash flow of the business. But Clydesdale slash Virgin Money will need to spend a lot of money up front uh, to, to tie the two businesses together. So it's not, not going to be until late uh, two years from now into the third year. Uh, so it's 2022 before we'll really see whether Duffy's plan has pay, uh, paid off. But in the short term, the balance sheet's in good nick uh, and there's a pretty sensible guy running it. And I think there's plenty of room for costs to come out of the business. So um you know, you got to take the like a owning a foreign bank is probably not what most Australians need in their portfolios, given they already own a bunch of banks. Uh, but I think the investment case is fairly clear, albeit um, I think it's going to be a fairly tough journey, and not everything's within management's control. Okay, so hello Nathan and Alex. In my last communication to Skid in the Game, this is one of my this is probably my favourite query we've had, Alex. I was accused of being a broker. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint, but I'm just a regular retired old fart attempting to manage my financial assets in <laughs> difficult investment times. Your views on the podcast are much appreciated. Any thoughts on Superloop and Redflex regards useless? <laughs> right. I don't remember accusing anyone of being a broker, but sorry about that. <laughs> uh, we'll go Superloop first. Um, so this is a telecommunications infrastructure business. It's another Bevan Slattery creation. He's a serial entrepreneur, founded NextDC, a number of other ones, Megaport as well, which is another listed business. Um and Superloop owns Fiber. They've got a network, I think, um, got some of the numbers in front of me. They've got about 670 kilometers of fiber that links Australia, Singapore, and Hong Kong. So that's kind of like a digital toll road in, a, in a essence. They get paid for how many people pass through the toll road and then how much they charge for each passing. 
Um, so there are attractions to a business like that. You know, when it's um, utilized highly, then it can be quite profitable. Um, incremental costs are low. Um, so these businesses can spew cash and have quite attractive returns. Um, but they've had a, a number of problems recently. So there was a PE firm that kicked the tires and then walked away. Um, and then subsequently they downgraded their earnings and it was quite a hefty downgrade. I think they were initially expecting about 13 to 18 mil EBITDA and the current consent, consensus expectations are about 7 million. So quite a significant downgrade there. Um, the problem is their, their debt position as well. Um, they did raise 30 million in February, um, but I think they'll have about 60 million of debt at the moment um, unless they've paid some more of that organically. So you're talking, you know, eight to 10 times um, um, net debt to EBITDA. Um, so that's obviously very high. And if they don't get earnings up, um, get better utilization of the assets, um, there could be more difficulty to come. So I guess this is potentially a, a good business, bad balance sheet situation. Um, so it's not something that we completely ignore. Um, you know, you could see a capital raising or you could see some asset sales and the balance sheet could be tidied up and it could be a much clearer picture. And that's something that we would um, take closer interest in. Um, but for the time being, it's it's quite risky. Um, so it would need a lot of work to get comfortable with where the business is at. And Redflex, Alex? Um, Redflex. So we have covered this a few times on the podcast here. Um, I don't think there's been a huge amount of change since we last, last covered it. Um, but what has happened recently, um, so there's there was a new CEO that was appointed um, and he reignited the sales engine of the business in the past the past CEO was really a caretaker to guide the company through their their legal issues, um, and he wasn't sort of a you know a strong sales executive. So the company languished during that period. Um, since then, they appointed an industry veteran who has done really well at reigniting the business, and I think they've won about seventy five million dollars of new work in the last twelve months. And if they can continue on that run rate, I think the business would have a much better future. Um, however. Um, photo enforcement was recently outlawed in Texas and that was a huge contributor to their revenue. I think it was about 13% from memory. Um, so that was a big body blow. So it's kind of been one step forward, one step back for them over the last year or so. And so they've, they've struggled to really make some progress and put the issues of the past behind them. Um, my view is that longer term, this industry needs to consolidate. I think there's, you know, the, the returns are too low across the industry. There's too many bidders on projects. And plus, it would make a lot of financial sense just to put a few of these together. And I know for a fact that Gatsis, uh, Census Gatso, which is a European listed business, is interested in doing something with Redflex. I've actually talked to the CEO personally about that. Um, but my understanding is that Redflex is more interested in going it alone. And there's the biggest competitor is Vera Mobility, which was recently private but is now listed in the United States. Um, and they seem to have taken a different path by diverse, diversifying into other areas. So it's not clear that the industry will actually move to a better position. Um, if these businesses continue to duke it out, then um, you know it's not clear to me whether this business will be materially more profitable in the future. Um, so yeah, that, that's where the, the business is at now. Um, it really needs to just win more work, stop losing contracts, and then hopefully it can be on a better path. But that remains to be seen. Just by way of disclosure, Alex, do you have those stocks in your portfolio? Um, no, I don't have Superloop. Um, never owned it. Um, I, I still have some okay. reflex. Now, last question, which might not be a surprise. Uh, any stocks that you'd be lightening in the current environment? 
Oh, that's an easy one. Um, for me, unprofitable tech stocks is something that you want to think really closely about. Any any business that's reliant on capital raisings to stay solvent is is a, a very risky situation in my eyes. The, the market's obviously frothy at the moment, um, th- and then that could change really quickly. And I just I just wouldn't want to own a business whose survival is dependent on a high share price and exuberant shareholders because those two things can change quickly, um, and you know, based on history, there's a very good chance of that. Yeah, I think in addition to just, you know, nosebleed valuations in the tech sector, I think the other one is the expensive defensives. But I, I find it's difficult to tell people that you really should be selling these businesses because it all depends on what your risk and return profile looks like. And I know that most intelligent investor members are retirees. And if I look at something like Transurban or Woolworths, the multiples, you know, it's probably never been higher. Um, you know, I can't think of when it's been higher for Transurban. That's for sure, it's it's huge valuation. But every time interest rates go down, the stock gets bid up, and you're still getting half decent distribution in a future environment where we're likely to have zero percent or as close to interest rates in Australia for potentially a long time. Now, obviously, that can change very mm. quickly for some reason inflation started to break out again, you'd see the share prices of uh, all those expensive defensives would, I can imagine them falling 30 or 40% pretty quickly to bring them back to 15 times earnings, which I think is something like Woolworths really deserves because it's just not going to grow very quickly and the sector's becoming more uh, increasingly competitive all the time. We've got Corfland opening up uh, now and they think they're going to have a good shot now. I don't really think they're going to matter too much but what happened in the UK in the grocery sector was uh, Audi came in with another similar type of business called Little. I think they're also German and they didn't actually need to have many sites uh, for people to go to but they had a huge impact on prices just in the fact that uh, even though that it's a fairly small network of shopping centres so it was just that discounting that absolutely smashed the profits of Tesco uh, who tried to price match and all people just left because Tesco was too expensive and so I think you need to be very careful about that because when you're paying 23 times earnings for Woolworths uh, with very little growth, uh, it's very easy to see how that goes back to a 15 times multiple in some sort of normal environment, although I don't really know what that looks like anymore. Mm. Yeah, is there a normal environment? I, I, I saw a stat last night that said that 2% of junk bonds in Europe are now negative yielding. Negative yielding junk bonds, it just makes no sense. And if that if that is the world we're heading where it's sort of, you know, QE everywhere and, and negative interest rates. I mean, you know, assets that yield anything are attractive. So it, it, it's really peculiar at the moment. There's almost no safe havens. You know, that's obviously why gold is going up. And so it, it is a really difficult environment to invest. And uh, yeah, it's, um, there's that's right. I think it's going to be a lot of people who have money in term deposits, for example, and they're used to getting at least 3%. And in future, as they mature, they're probably only going to get around 1% or a bit more. And does it make sense to have term deposits, which are fully taxable, uh, even though a lot of people would be on 0% tax rates anyway, uh, when you can buy, let's say, Woolworths, if it can hold its multiple or at least grow a little bit, and then you get a 4%, 4.5% fully frank dividend yield. Um, but I just think mm. you know, just, I just think the main thing is just to be careful about what you're trying to achieve. And and I do think just look a little bit beyond the top 20 stocks. They've had a like absolutely tremendous six months and I mean, the, the top 20 stocks is actually up 20% and the average stock went up 20% as well, which is quite incredible for such a 
bunch of very low growth businesses that were already trading on very high multiples. But there's a bunch of stocks in the middle ground that uh, people aren't really paying much attention to that actually might be far better uh, bets over time. And one might be Smart Group, uh, as an example, it's a salary packaging company owned in the funds. It's uh, 5% uh, fully frank dividend yield and great insider owner who's done a, has a terrific track record, has pretty stable business uh, from, you know, essentially what is a, a tax advantage through providing salary uh, packaging and novated leases to public uh, employees, which should be fairly stable even through a recession. And that actually might be a better uh, bet because at least uh, the company can make little acquisitions along the way and keep ripping costs out of the business. But I also find it hard to offer any advice and not that we can provide personal advice anyway, but the people who own you know, very large stakes in these businesses built up over a long period of time to say you should sell and potentially have a tax issue and then to move into something else. So I find that uh, very difficult, but I think the areas of uh, overvaluation or where we should really expect modest returns are fairly obvious and you're reading about them in the newspaper. All right, Alex, I uh, just want to wish you all the best on Sunday night, uh, whether you've got Australia or England. Yep, hopefully Australia. <laughs> we want to get some revenge for last time. So, yeah, hope, hopefully you guys And thanks well everyone tonight. else for listening. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, as always, you can send in any questions to skin in the game, all one word, at investmart.com.au. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the income, growth, and small companies funds, head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investmart.com.au.